Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from 96 South Carolina. And you know, Ray, when I think of South Carolina, I actually think deep six. I mean, <laughs> I, what's going on down at that state is just weirdness. It's a number. It's a city that's a number. It's a city that's a number. Having been from Arkansas, I knew of 56 Arkansas, which was a little town up in the Ozark, but 96 South Carolina. I don't know that I've ever lived in a number. Well, that's true. But of course, we're math guys. Maybe we should have lived in a number. Could have. There's still time. There's still time. Not likely. But the numbers are getting up there. That's the problem. It would take a number like 96 for us to move. Yes. That's right. We're up probably on our last session on dialogue. And what I thought it might be helpful is for us to maybe summarize a little bit about what we have explored over the last few episodes regarding the concept of dialogue, how it's distinguished from other forms of communication. We talked about that. We also talked most recently about the conditions under which dialogue occurs and how they really are necessary conditions. We also spoke about the impact of dialogue and how you might be able to tell when you're in dialogue. So I guess I would start and I would want to rebuild a little bit of this. And this is a summary. And then what we want to do is wrap up this episode with the conversations. Well, then what are some barriers that prevent us from engaging in dialogue other than our own personal inabilities or skill levels to actually engage in it? So maybe to back up and talk a little bit about how can you tell when dialogue's occurring? Well, I think uh, one of the things I recall about dialogue and one of the observations that is occurring is that it's conversation that's fluid. It's conversation that has a natural flow to it. I think you used an example of almost like a stream or a river, but that it moves toward resolution. Mm-hmm. If allowed to operate uh, functionally uh, in a manner that causes it to be successful, it will move toward resolution. So dialogue is a, to me, a form of communication that's invested in solution. It's invested in an outcome that produces a positive result. The thing that sticks with me, Bob, the thing that's most impressive, most important to me about that form of communication, it's the only form of communication I know of that has the potential to produce a result that no one walked in with. Hmm. It has the idea to create something new. I mean, it has the possibility of creating something brand new. And I love that. I mean, that's so important to me that in problem solving, when you're using old measures, old ways of solving problems, you don't get any new, better results. But dialogue can, in fact, produce that kind of phenomenon, a brand new, unthought of, unheard of result. You know, and the thing that jumps out to me about dialogue that really distinguishes itself is when you actually engage in true confrontation of ideas, where you challenge each other, where you don't back off of conflict, and yet there's not this extreme defensiveness that always or often occurs in other conversations, is when you see people talking about real issues, they're digging beneath what is a smooth surface, 
They're no longer engaged in simply a polite conversation. They're talking about very important things, and they're beginning to really challenge each other. And yet at the same time, it doesn't carry with it a sense of defensiveness, where people are constantly having to defend their positions, are constantly having to engage in pushback in a way that's not building something, as you said, moving towards a resolution that really is good for all. I would also add that in my experience, dialogue most often produces positive results for relationship. Mm -hmm. Very often, while that's not what you're working on as a relationship, the byproduct of effective dialogue is that the relationships of those involved in that dialogue often improve, get better, Mm -hmm. create more meaning. And that's, to me, a benefit, a tangential benefit that is well worth the effort. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think about that we have talked about is distinguish dialogue from other forms of communication. And I was putting in groups and you were talking about it one-on-one with others, but it's the notion of debate, polite discussion, skillful discussion or facilitated discussion and dialogue. And we suggested that there are three elements that really distinguish the forms of communication. One is the amount of inquiry compared to advocacy. The other is the degree to which we create shared understanding. And the third one is where we really push ideas outward rather than inward. So often conversation tries to converge quickly and people try to close the conversation versus push the conversation to explore all the different options, all the different possibilities. In fact, one of the phrases we use that I think really might help listeners is to stay in the question. So those were the three elements that distinguish that continuum from debate to dialogue. Oh, you wanted to jump in. What percentage of conversations from your experience, actually evolve to the point of you could consider them dialogue? Almost all of mine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're such a rare exception. In the general population, for those who aren't committed to it, again, what percentage of conversations you think actually evolve to the point that you would consider them dialogue? You know, in a way, that's a hard question. But on the other hand, it's, it's actually pretty easily. I would say dialogue is rare. And so probably percent of conversations that truly move towards what we would call dialogue is down there around 10%. It's a fun question to think about because when you think about conversations in general and communication in general, and we're involved in it all day long in so many different ways, but we're not as intentional about thinking, where am I right now? What right. kind of conversation am I involved in? And the truth of the matter is, Unless you have someone who is focused on the process, who's really thinking about the process, you're probably not going to move towards dialogue because certain questions are going to have to be asked to take that conversation to what I would call the next level. For dialogue to occur, someone or someones have to stay alert and have to be intentional because otherwise to come out of becoming spontaneous, it does occur. There, there are spontaneous dialogues, but they're so rare. And the fact that they're surprising says that people didn't intend and weren't staying alert. And just to confirm to our listeners out there, they've heard us hammering on this point. I think they know we really believe in dialogue. We think this may be the most important form of communication you can engage in on a regular basis. The statement is, listener, if you want dialogue, you may be the one, you probably are the one that is going to have to commit to being focused on the process as well as the content. So you just got to do it. There's no way around this one. We keep saying how important this conversation is, but unless people are willing to say, okay, I will be more intentional and attentive to the process. And the truth of the matter is, Bear, I've shared this so often with executives and they say, okay, I'll commit to it. And then the very next session, 
They're just not engaged in it. I remember an executive who sat in on a session and he was an old school kind of guy, a real hard-nosed executive. When I want uh, your opinion, I'll give it to you. That was his style. So he sits in on one of these sessions and we're talking about dialogue. He says, I like it. I buy it. And so I think interesting. So about two months later, I'm, I'm seeing him at the corporate office and I'm doing a session on dialogue and he happens to sit in on it. And as I'm sharing with the group, how difficult this is, he raises his hand and says to the group, you know, Bob's right here. This really is difficult. I've been doing it for two months and no one's noticed. (laughs) I thought, bless your heart. No one will ever notice because you're not even close to doing dialogue. But it was kind of a funny thing because he really said, I want to do this. I'm going to do it. But he could not get himself to attend the process. That would be the point I would be making. Well, in the things you're saying, I often hear and understand that people's good intentions aren't enough because their habits are going to get in the way. And unless people are willing to form a new habit and the struggle that takes, the likelihood of being someone who can consistently engage others in dialogue is not great because most of our habits work against it rather than toward it. Uh, But if you're willing to make a new habit, dialogue is certainly one that's worth your time and effort. Yes. And speaking of that making a new habit, it may be a case where as well-intentioned as we are, the examples are plentiful that people are not going to do this. They just can't do it with well-intentioned thoughts. And so it may be you're going to have to set up a system, maybe even a colleague to challenge you on it or to encourage you or to somehow give you feedback, even within a meeting of whether you're attending the process. We could get into all of that and probably don't want to go there. But my reaction is, yeah, this is going to be one that if you've been listening and all and say, I think I like this, it's going to take more than just, I think I like this. It's going to take you saying, I got to figure out how to get myself to do this on a more regular basis. Well, you know, we talked about that, the summary, four conditions. I want to make sure that we summarize those. Uh, One is that people in a group need to treat each other as equals. And that means addressing the hierarchy. And it doesn't mean doing away with the hierarchy. It's more a case of mitigating, doing something about it and trying as much as possible to create a sense of equality among the group. And you had some comments on there. Well, individual basis and applying this individually in conversation, I think you never pull rank. You never step into a role, speak through the role. You stay authentic, stay personal, and prevent yourself from stepping into a picture others might have of you and try to be authentic. That would be the personal application of it. I think, like you said, you can't ignore hierarchy. You can't presume people are going to strip you of your role. They're still going to see you who you are. But I think the style you encourage executives to use is if you ask questions, people don't often put you in that superior role. If you're asking questions that have legitimate open-endedness to them, they'll give you room not to be the boss for a while. The second condition that we talked about was the notion of you have to suspend assumptions. And I actually liked your term is you have to be willing to hold on to your opinions, that the conversation we want here is a more fluid, open conversation. And you have to be willing to suspend those opinions, not give them up, not deny them, even free to express them, but to suspend them and say, I'm open to other people's perspectives. I'm open to other people's opinions. We did comment, third condition necessary for people to listen deeply. And probably the phrase we used that was most helpful was the idea of probing beneath the smooth surface. And then lastly, we commented on someone does need to attend a process. We keep talking about that. I apologize to the listeners for that. But it's amazing how dialogue will not occur unless there is someone or someones who are really thinking and watching and observing the process in addition to the content that's going on. It so amazes me 
in executive meeting after executive meeting that I've been in, that people are so focused on content. They get so caught up in it that the conversation itself goes awry. And people think, I don't know how that happened. And I'm sitting there saying, well, because no one was there to to tend to the process. We all got caught up in the content and we got involved with our dog in the fight. Yeah. Often people think that facilitative role, as you're describing it, is a matter of control. When in fact, it's not control at all. You're guiding, you're shaping uh, the conversation, but you're not controlling it. You don't have to feel the need to take control and move it to where you need it to be. Mm-hmm. I think when you're talking about dialogue and you're going to play that role of being the monitor of what's actually taking place conversationally, I think you need to see yourself as a guide or someone who's trying to shape conversation, give it a little bit of form, but certainly not control, not what we'd ask anyone who's in that role to do. So let's talk briefly about what will stop dialogue in its track. What are the barriers to dialogue? And one I'd put out there is when people avoid conflict. I mean, one of the quickest barriers that I see in a group is when you clearly see individuals or groups saying, we don't want to deal with the conflict. We've got a conflict here and we're going to avoid it. And so one of the ways of avoiding it without being explicit of saying, we're not going to talk about that is to simply stay at the smooth surface. Let's have a polite conversation. Let's not dig deep enough. If I bump into conflict, I back off and I say, you know, we really like each other. And so we just have this very harmonious conversation, but nothing ever gets done. And we all recognize there's conflict out there, but we're not going to address it. So I think we need to realize you can't really have dialogue when people are engaged actively in avoiding conflict. The other point I would make is that when people take polarized positions and they won't give them up. I mean, what's going on at the national level right now? We really can't have a dialogue at the national level because we have people who have taken extremely polarized position and there is no alternative. And so then the best you can get in a small group, let's say we're in an executive meeting and people have come down very hard and adamant and dug in their heels. Those are all terms we would use. They'll say, well, let's just agree to disagree. Well, whenever I hear that comment, I know we're one, not in dialogue and two, we're not going to move towards dialogue because people are simply avoiding what we need to talk about. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think when you've described dialogue, you've always talked about shared vision and shared meaning. Well, polarized opinions do the opposite of create shared meaning. Mm -hmm. They drive people apart. You're essentially saying, I'm on this side, and it's very different than your side. And unless you come to me, we can't come to any common understanding. And that is an obstruction to dialogue, not a way to produce it. So I couldn't agree more that when people come in with The intent of maintaining a polarized view, an absolute view, an uninfluenceable view, they're not good candidates for dialogue. Mm -hmm. That would be a barrier that is virtually impossible to overcome. With you there. The other one I would want to bring up, and I find this to be both humorous and interesting and yet very powerful, is the notion of the defensive routines that we engage in when we get involved in communication. We're mostly unaware of them. That is, we refer to these defensive routines as a self-sealing. That is, when we engage in them, we don't even realize that what we're doing is really reacting defensively and essentially cutting off dialogue as a form of conversation. So an example I would give is preemptive, forceful advocacy. So I come into a meeting and I've decided, you know, I'm going to state my position very forcefully and I'm going to preempt any possibilities of alternatives. Well, when I do that, it really is a defensive routine because what I'm saying is I don't want to hear your opinion. 
I don't want to hear what you've got to say. I'm just going to preempt everything by doing that. And I know both you and I have seen many executives engage in kind of a preemptive, forceful advocacy. I'm going to advocate for a point. And then when I'm done, I'm going to say, well, what do the rest of you think? And you think to yourself, only a fool would step into that space. No one's going to go there because you've been so forceful and you've been so preemptive. Uh, Yeah, I agree that first strike style is an obvious barrier to going further into dialogue, getting people further engaged in discussion. If you're going to go on a first strike basis, then they have very little they can do other than defend themselves or to make themselves less of a target, which Mm -hmm. certainly is not part of the process that you want to foster if you're going to have people engage in conversation that makes a difference. I think one of the ones that you mentioned before is the idea of you walk into a conversation maintaining there are certain things that we cannot discuss. Mm-hmm. That idea that they're undiscussables. If you approach a conversation in that manner, what you're really saying is I'm walling off certain sections. And even though there might be real meaning in those places that you walled off, there might be real advantage to discussing those and getting those out in the open and getting through those and beyond those. If you've committed to maintaining that these things are just not discussable, that sets up one of these barriers to effective dialogue. We can't go there. Absolutely. And then the last one that I think is kind of humorous because I see a lot of people doing this, particularly in organizations, pride themselves in being polite and caring about people, is when we shelter others from criticism. The number of meetings I've been in when there's an individual that's a bit on the spot and they've been challenged for poor performance or they've been challenged for something and someone will come to their rescue and they will try to shelter that person from criticism. And the surprising outcome is that we can't go any deeper with this conversation because everybody now feels like we've got to shelter this person. We've got to protect this person. And what's so interesting is when you really engage in dialogue, you can move through that position, that criticism to a more effective place. But when people get into these defensive routines of sheltering others, it ends up cutting the dialogue off. It ends up preventing it from actually happening. And again, it's when I point it out, when I'm facilitating, people don't even see it. It's so self-sealing. They really think they're doing the right thing. They're protecting one of their subordinates. They're protecting one of their peers. When in fact, what they're doing is reducing the potential for us to have an honest conversation that is more approaching dialogue. In this area of defensive routines, if we try to make application to a one-on-one conversation, one of the defensive routines I see people use regularly in one-on-one conversations is projection. Mm. They project onto others what they themselves are either most concerned about or most afraid of or most upset by and project that onto the other person and automatically make them a problem automatically make them the barrier when in fact it's their projection that's causing the break in the conversation. And I think that's, again, one of those hidden ones that people don't see themselves as doing that. But if you were to stand aside and watch the conversation take place, you could say, ah, that isn't tested. That's just their view. They're projecting out onto that other individual what they're either most concerned about or most afraid of or most like them that they believe will be an obstacle. Interesting. And absolutely on target as far as I'm concerned. Well, clearly, we will continue to come back to dialogue because we're so positive about it and feel it's such an important form of conversation. But we will move on. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is. 
almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast. Thank you.